This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The biggest battle we will ever have to face is the battle between you and you. It's the battle of taking your mind to that limit and then breaking through. On the Mindful Experiment podcast, we will share concepts, universal laws, and interviewing individuals who have done just that, who have gone through the dark times and through those moments allowed their light to shine bright. I'm your host, Dr. Vic Manzo, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and taking this journey with me as we discover different avenues to break through those limits, expand your reality, and evolve into the person you desire to be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This show is sponsored by Empower Your Reality. Empower Your Reality is an online consciousness school that is designed to help you elevate the mind, raise your consciousness, your vibration, to attract and create the reality of what it is that you desire. On Empower, at Empower Your Reality, we have books, we have online classes, you can find the podcast here on there, and other things that can help you elevate and truly learn the art and the science of creating the reality of what it is that you want to experience in your life. So for more information to check out all that we're up to and what we're doing, please visit www.empoweryourreality.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome. This is Dr. Vic, and you're listening to another weekly episode here on The Mindful Experiment. Once a week, we interview someone to share some insight, to help raise our vibe, our mindset, shift it to a different perspective, have us see something that can transform us in some way, shape, or form. And this week, I have the distinct honor. I had such a great pleasure of, of interviewing and learning from Dr. Fleet Mall. Dr. Fleet Mall, uh, we, we discussed a lot of different things, but it's something that's big on my heart. It's something that I'm very passionate about. It's something that I, I took on early on, and it really transformed my life. And he wrote a book on this called Radical Responsibility, How to Truly Take Self-Responsibility. To give you a little feedback about Dr. Maul, um, he's an author, renowned growth mindset and meditation teacher who delivers his training programs and seminars around the world, both in person 
and online through Heart Mind Institute. He's an executive coach, inspirational speaker, and social entrepreneur who works at the intersection of personal and social transformation. Fleet founded the Prison Mindfulness Institute in a national prison hospice association, catalyzing two national movements while serving a 14-year mandatory minimum federal drug sentence from 1985 to 1999. Dr. Maul developed the Radical Responsibility Empowerment Model that embraces 100% ownership for each and every circumstance we face, free of blaming oneself or others. Fleet is a Roshi Zen Master in the International Zen Peacemaker Order and Arkara Senior Dharma Teacher in the Global Shambhala Meditation Community. He is the author of Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearless, Live Our Higher Purpose, and Become an unstoppable force for the good in the world. I am telling you, sit back, relax, enjoy this episode. I had such an honor of interviewing him, such wealth of wisdom and so much more. So I'm not going to take any thunder away. I hope I got you excited enough for this one. Here is Dr. Fleet Mall. Dr. Mall, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you? I am doing fantastic. How about yourself, my friend? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to have you on. I mean, there's a lot of similarities here. Your mindset, mindfulness teacher. We were talking a little bit about, I was getting a little, learn a little bit more than just what I researched on you earlier before we jumped on. And I'm really excited to have you here. You're doing some amazing things. Uh, and I can't wait to share the listeners of what you're up to and what you're doing. Um, when we first start, listeners already know how this goes. Um, they're very, well, they know my system. Um, I always like to ask the first question is, how did you get into what you're doing? Because what you're doing is unique and you're helping out a, a sector and you're doing a lot of other great things too. Um, how did you, how did your life lead you into that direction? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, the, the core of my story really has to do with the fact that I spent 14 years in a federal prison between 1985 and 1999. And that's something uh, I'm certainly not proud of and not proud of how I got myself there. I was in for drug charges. I was one of those uh, baby boomers that came of age in the, in the 60s and uh, just went headlong into the counterculture at that time. I was kind of a classy, angry young man and uh, graduated from high school in 1968, an incredibly tumultuous year in, in our American society and uh, with all the assassinations and so forth. And so I was just very, for a lot of reasons, I was just very kind of angry, alienated, uh, kind of lost faith in the culture that I was, you know, being brought up in and just didn't believe anything anymore. And, and so I just went really headlong into the counterculture and all the drug experimentation. Uh, you know, I was at a big state university, but I was really man majoring in drug, sex and rock and roll more than anything else and anti-war politics and all that. And uh, I eventually became disillusioned with even more with all of that, with a lot of things and wanted to leave the country. Uh, I think when Nixon was reelected, I, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I, but I also had this idea. I was, I'd always been searching for something authentic and real because I remember my childhood feeling, maybe this is true for a lot of people, but my childhood felt very magical. I felt plugged into something very magical. And then kind of maybe around the time of starting school or something, it all just went away and went into gray tones and the magic went away. And, you know, we had some issues in my family. I, mean, I grew up in a basically good middle-class Midwestern Roman Catholic family, but we had some alcoholism in the family and there were some issues and so forth that I'm sure contributed. But anyway, I never made peace with kind of that magic going away. And so I was always looking for it and, you know, and, and, you know, so some, you know, thought maybe I was rediscovering that in, in the drugs, the, the sex, the alcohol, the rock and roll, the music and so forth. But all that was, you know, not that there wasn't any real magic there, but especially if you had any propensity towards addiction, you know, it's a real, real dangerous way to go and a lot of baggage and it kind of mirage like. Uh, but somehow I had some notion. Uh, I'd always had this idea that I, that I wanted to travel down to Peru and that I would be connecting with something magical down there. I don't even know where I where I got that. And it wasn't about the drugs or anything like that. Um so anyway, I, I, I left the country and started traveling. And I spent, uh, you know, traveled through Latin America, through Cent Mexico and Central America, ended up buying a sailboat and spent almost a year sailing in the Caribbean, which was a very magical experience and was very healing, actually. Uh, eventually, we sold the boat and continued our travels down to South America. And I did make it to Peru eventually. And, and I did discover something there that was very powerful, real kind of environmental magic there. And I remember the first time I returned to the U.S., I wasn't able to bring that with me. You know, I was really, it was like 
suddenly I was in a different world and I was back to that space where I felt kind of empty in the gray tones and, you know, and uh, so I realized it was kind of an environmental thing that I wasn't able to, to integrate and hold my own. And, and eventually I did go back down there. Uh, but anyway, within all those travels, even though drugs weren't the centerpiece of it, I did continue off and on with the drug experimentation. And then eventually uh, just running out of money and being broke, I fell into small time drug smuggling just as a way to continue to live outside the system. And I, I justified that with this whole kind of us versus them thinking I had going on. And, and you know, that just that anger and alienation that led me into this kind of criminal mindset that I justified. And I actually thought I was one of the good guys. And here I'm actually involved in very harmful behavior, right? Bringing cocaine into the United States. And I had all these internal justifications. So uh, at the same time, I was always a spiritual seeker and uh, always interested in meditation. I've been pursuing that for a long time. And and uh, I kind of lost faith in the religious tradition I was brought up in, uh, which had nothing to do with that religious tradition. It was just my experience. And, uh, you know, I, d- I had discovered Eastern religions and philosophy early on in high school, was very interested in that and continuing to pursue all that. And uh, eventually I, I found about a uh, a new university that was started by this Tibetan meditation master, Naropa, then Naropa Institute, Naropa University uh, in Boulder, Colorado. And I actually read about that high up in the place where I lived, high up in the Andes Mountains in a very secluded valley in, in Peru. And some tourists came by and found us. They had a copy of Rolling, Mo- Rolling Stone magazine that had a big feature story about the first summer session in Naropa. When I saw that, I knew I had to go there. And so I did. And, you know, that's where I encountered my my original spiritual teacher and and the tradition that I'm still very involved in practicing in. And it, and it became a very rich era in my life. But I brought all that baggage with me. I was still involved in the drug smuggling. And before I could tease all that apart, I earned my way into that federal prison sentence. But fortunately, when when the cell door slammed on me, it finally thoroughly woke me up. And especially my son was nine years old at the time. And I realized what I'd done to him. He was going to grow up without a dad. And actually, when I first got, when I got sentenced, I was sentenced to a 30-year no parole sentence. And I thought, I was 35 years old then. I thought I would be 65 when I was going to get out. And I pretty much thought my life as I knew it was over. In fact, the night before my sentencing, I was facing a sentence of anywhere from 10 years to life with no parole. And if I'd gotten life, I would probably still be there because the only thing that can get you out of that, uh, a life with no parole sentence is a presidential pardon. And those are far and few between unless you're connected or whatever, as, as we all know. And, and so, you know, that was quite a night. And, uh, and they had me in a, they actually had me in an observation suicide watch cell. I wasn't suicidal. I guess they were just worried about me. I was freaked out, but I wasn't suicidal. I was just freaked out <laughs> and uh i couldn't sleep and i was up all night and i remember early in the morning before dawn i climbed up on this you know it was one of these county jail cells where it's all concrete and steel it's all built in and so there's this built-in toilet stainless steel thing and there was one small window way up high in the wall so i climbed up on top of that so i could reach up and peer out this window i was just feeling this tremendous claustrophobia and i could peer out and see the night sky and see the stars and eventually, I, 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 something came over me. I just, some wave came over me. And, and I got down, and I sat on the side of my bunk. And just this absolute clarity arose in me that I wasn't going to give up. That no matter what happened the next day, no matter what sentence I received, I wasn't going to give up on myself. I wasn't going to give up on my son. I wasn't going to give up on life. I wasn't going to give up on the, the tradition that I was part of at that time, the Buddhist teachings that I've been practicing for a long time. And that gave me a tremendous sense of confidence. I was still extremely, you know, worried, but I just had this newfound confidence that, and uh, so anyway, I was sentenced to 30 years, no parole. And I remember my knees kind of buckled when I got the sentence. My, I was hoping for a lot less and my lawyer kind of held me up. And uh, fortunately I was sentenced before 1987 um, when they changed the sentence, federal sentencing laws. So um, I received a lot of good time. I didn't really, it took me a couple of years to figure this out, but if I was to stay out of trouble, you get a lot of statutory good time. And then if you keep a job in prison you get what they call extra good time or work good time. So I found out that if I stayed out of trouble, I would serve 18 and a half years on that 30. 
Now, if I've been sentenced a couple of years later because they got rid of all that and now they don't have parole anymore anyway, all sentences in the federal system are without parole. Um, I would have had to serve about 23 on, well, about on that 30 year sentence, I would have served about 27. Then my appeal took about three years to go through the courts and they knocked off one count and that brought my sentence from 30 to 25. And so I meant if I stayed out of trouble, I'd serve 14 and a half, which is what I served. But at any rate, that was a huge wake up call and I was devastated over what I'd done with my son. So I became radically motivated to extricate any negativity out of my life and try to find some way to contribute to life and take every, all the good I've been given by my family and by my teacher and my spiritual tradition, really do something good with it. So I am proud about what I did with that time for 14 years. Um, and uh, it was really a transformative time for me. It was a very painful, difficult time. Prison's a crazy place, a painful place, a really harsh place. It actually makes most people worse. Most people come out of prison much worse than they went in. I was lucky that I came in with a lot of resources and a lot of training. So I was able to make it really work for me in a way. And um, I was able to contribute a lot there. I helped start the first hospice program in a prison anywhere in the world and, and then started a national organization to get that model out to the world. And now there's probably 75, 80 hospice programs in state and federal prisons in the U.S. and some internationally as well. So that's one thing that helps me sleep well at night, knowing that I contributed to that. And I started an organization to support prisoners interested in meditation. I started both those organizations while I was in prison. I taught school for my day job for 14 years. I taught school helping other inmates um, learn to read or get their GED uh, or take college classes and uh, did the hospice work, very involved in my own drug and alcohol recovery through 12-step programming and taught meditation in, in the prison chapel. And so I had a very active life and and practiced very intensively and studied very intensively. So I led this kind of service-oriented monastic life for 14 years. And, uh, and somehow that set me up to have really nothing but endless opportunities since I've been out. I got out in 1999 and never looked back and been traveling the world since teaching and, and uh, bringing transformational programming into the criminal justice system and public safety sector and also working in the business world. And, and I'm just really grateful. I've had nothing but opportunities since I got out. I love the story and, and everything and how you eloquently shared it. Cause it's, it's such a powerful story of what you did. And you, sometimes people, when they go through harsh times or they have something that is weakens their knees, base your knees buckle in a sense. Um, a lot of times that breaks a person down and, and, and sometimes they don't make it back. And you not only, came back, but you went full force and you started practicing there doing what you wanted to do. And it kind of prepped you. So when you came out, you were ready to go and taking on. And I think that's, that's just, that's just powerful. And I, and I commend you with that because it takes a lot of strength, inner strength, uh, and, and, and to be able to make that shift and that change. So kudos to you on that. And what a story. Um, I can relate to you on the whole colorful thing to the gray area, right? In life, right? Happens usually rough around seven years old is where, where the brain kind of makes that switch to more left uh, logical thinking and those types of things. Uh, my mind started at seven. It hit at 12 hardcore where all of a sudden I was like, where's that magic? Where's that, 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 that awe of life? It's not in me anymore. What happened to it? And so I could totally connect and being a Roman Catholic, my, raised an Italian Roman Catholic, definitely connected you there too, my friend. So... <laughs> My next question, I just wanted to make sure to show you how we're connected here a little bit. My next question, though, is then how did you make that transformational change, though, going to in prison and stuff like what what kind of thing? And I know you have a book out called Radical Responsibility and things like that. But what was your what kind of what kind of things did you have to go through from a mental standpoint to make that shift and change? And we can speak from a responsibility side, but I want to hear your whole story on that, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, so we do have a similarity there. I grew up Irish Catholic or mostly Irish, you know, um, and, uh, but you're a lot younger than I am. So I was pre-Vatican II Catholic. That's the whole different world. That's hell and brimstone, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the Catholic world after the, you know, after Vatican II became guitar masses and, you know, <laughs> so I had the nuns with the big sticks. That's what I grew up with. I did grow up with a little bit of that. I remember I used to get hit in kindergarten and, and uh, was it first? No, not first grade. Kindergarten was the last time where they would have reprimanded you. But after that, then that kind of went away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had that all the way through the eighth grade. I went to a Jesuit high school and actually they were very enlightened educators. Um, and uh, I did. I got a very good education, high school education with the Jesuits. Um, 
<clears throat> so, and those wonderful nuns were probably just trying to get me to grow up right, you know, but <laughs> they were pretty tough. So, you know, when I landed in prison, um, I'm just really grateful for the background that I had because despite problems in my family, I grew, you know, grew up in a family with a lot of good values and, and, um, and then, you know, I, I had the wonderful opportunity to study with this amazing, uh, Tibetan meditation master for many years named, uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And so I had received a lot. And, uh, so I went in with a lot of resources and I recognized immediately that the world I was in was one of just tremendous anger and bitterness and that everybody around me, uh, I mean, all my fellow prisoners, they all had this huge victim story. And of course the world perceives them as the perpetrators and, but they perceive themselves as victims and they all, you know, many actually many, most people end up in trouble because they were victimized in their childhood. I mean, it's just a cycle, you know, uh, most people that, you know, are not functioning well in life. It, it's due to things that happen in their childhood and especially people who become you know, violent or abusive or get involved in very serious kind of criminal activity. You, you, I'll guarantee you there's all kinds of stuff in their childhood. So, but they also felt victimized by the system or over-prosecuted, or they just felt like their, their, their fall buddies did them wrong or their lawyer did them wrong. Anyway, everybody had, and the kind of ritual when you met somebody in prison, you'd often go out and walk on the yard or something in, you know, and, and, you know, they would share their victim story. You'd share your victim story, you know. And after I went through that ritual a couple of times, I, I didn't want to hear my story anymore. I didn't want to hear their stories. But probably not very compassionate on my part, but it's just not where I wanted to live. And I realized that if I wasn't really proactive, you know, I'd end up being that way. And I didn't want to come out of prison anger, angry and bitter with a big victim story. I didn't want to live that way in prison. And so I realized I really needed to be proactive about this. And I, I, I really realized that my only way through this experience was just to embrace radical ownership and responsibility, 200% responsibility, having got myself into that. And it was clear to me that I did get myself into that situation. I worked hard to get there. Now, I was, like many people, I think, grossly over-prosecuted. The only reason I went to trial was I didn't feel I was guilty of the one charge that carried this no-parole sentence. If it wasn't for that charge, I would have pled guilty and put myself at the mercy of the court. But nonetheless, I, I earned my way there. And I knew that. And, you know, if I wanted to get into the, you know, the the blame and all that, I mean, there were plenty, you know, I ended up getting the sentence I got because I refused to testify against anybody. And it wasn't I was trying to be a stand up guy. I, w I was a Buddhist and <clears throat> ethically, I couldn't see, you know, having somebody else do my time, somebody else suffer for me. Um, you know, so I wasn't trying to be a stand-up guy. I just wasn't going to, you know, turn people in so I could go free or get a better deal. So anyway, a lot of other people made different decisions. So there were plenty of people I could have be, been really angry about, even people that were close to me. Uh, you know, when the government prosecutes you, they don't follow any rules. They break all the rules. They break all the, they play hardball, right? So if I wanted to think about all that stuff, I could have just been, had my victim story and been blaming and blaming and I just fortunately had the clarity that that was a black hole that was going nowhere for me in my life. And I just decided to forget about all that and focus on owning the fact that I got myself there and that it was absolutely completely up to me what I was going to do from this point on. And there was that kind of ownership that would take my life somewhere and anything else was just going to, you know, bury me in this black hole of, of victim thinking. And so I made that choice and, and I lived that way. And that's really where this radical responsibility uh, philosophy developed came from because I saw that was the only place I had any real choice or power. You know, I didn't have any power overall. Uh, you know, any of the people I felt had done me wrong. I didn't have any power over the government. I didn't have any power over that, any of that. The only thing I had any real influence over was myself. And so I decided to focus my energy there. And that just made, it made a huge difference. Um, you know, I mentioned before about starting the hospice work there and and I don't bring that up to pat myself on the back. I do. I am willing to be public about some of the things I achieved while I was in prison because I like for people to see that people in prison have value and that people in prison are redeemable. In fact, there's amazing people behind bars and, and all human beings are redeemable. And so um, I like, you know, that people see that here's somebody that was in prison that actually did something good and and uh, that there are many more people that, that, you know, can be doing something good and that are doing good things in prison. 
And uh, so that's one reason. But the other reason is I think it's really instructive because I was in a maximum security federal prison hospital. It wasn't as bad as being in one of the penitentiaries, which is where I thought I would end up. I kind of just by luck, I ended up in this U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Southwest Missouri. My case was in St. Louis. So that was it was kind of the nearby one. And all the patients there, there were about a um, about a thousand patients, about 600 medical and 400 psychiatric. And then there were about 300 inmates that were just there to help run the place like myself. They called us the work cadre. And they worked in housekeeping or the carpentry shop or welding or just maintenance or hospital orderlies. I ended up getting a job in the school. I had an education. I had a master's degree. So I got a job in the school teaching. And that was my day job, as I said. But it was a maximum security prison nonetheless. And, um, you know, uh, sociologists call that a total institution, which basically means it's a totalitarian state. And, you know, the authorities have all power and resistance is completely futile. In fact, if you buck the system there, you'd end up back in the in the psych ward in four point restraints on a concrete bunk, you know, full of halidol or thorazine getting hosed down at night, literally. So there was no way you could buck the system there. And so how do you get anything done? And when you when you you know, I was creative. I wanted to do something with my time there. I wanted to contribute. And, and when you would ask any staff person, could we try this? Or could we try that? If you ever tried this, the answer was always no. And there was always a story like, well, we used to do that. And some inmate abuse that we don't do it anymore. This, if you are audacious enough to ask why you could get in trouble just asking why, if you ask the wrong person, why, right? If it wasn't just yes or no, sir. So how do you get anything done in that environment? And again, it was this approach of, of not blaming the environment and blaming people, but what can I do? How can I approach people? How can I be? Who am I being? How will that create a different relationship, a different result? Not to, not to manipulate anyone, but just in a very genuine way to connect with people and connect with our shared humanity and find ways to get things done. And taking that approach, I was able to start two national organizations from inside the prison which, you know, you're not supposed to be able to do. And if I had asked them, can I start a nonprofit? They would say, no, you can't start a nonprofit. I just went and did it. And I did it very transparently through correspondence. I didn't hide anything. And I was waiting for them to put the hammer down anytime and say, you can't do this. But that never happened. There was one point, uh, it's just a quick little story. Uh, later on into my time, after we'd had the hospice program going for quite a while, and we we're getting a lot of notoriety around it, uh, a uh, major hospice magazine came and, and did an interview with us about it. And I was able to publish some stuff. So then 60 minutes was getting ready to start a second one. They had 60 minutes on Sunday, which we all familiar with. They were going to start another one on Wednesday nights. So they had producers going around looking for stories. And so they, they came and they interviewed me and, and uh, they were going to do a big story there. They didn't end up doing it because the, the prison was like so tight on them and restrictive of them and giving them access. I think they decided they wouldn't be able to get the story they wanted, but they came. And, and, and when this happened, one of the warden, the associate wardens pulled me in and he, and he said, what the hell is going on here? You've got this hospice program. You're publishing articles. You have some organization out there. You have, a, and that 60 minute, how did all this happen? And I just got, I don't know, boss, you know, I've just been, doing what I do. Nobody told me I couldn't do it. You know, I just, you know, trying to help out here, you know, and he's looking at me like, you know, but it was sort of like, you're not supposed to be able to do that. Right. But, it, but it happened, but it really was all because, you know, another influence from my uh, uh, Buddhist teacher was a real focus on, on what's skillful and what's beneficial. It's not to say that there isn't right and wrong. Morality is very important in the Buddhist tradition, but it's, but it's not so much focusing on what's right and wrong. It's what, what actually creates benefit, what's skillful and leads to good results and, and benefit for human beings. And what is it that's unskillful and, and creates harm? It doesn't create benefit, right? So, so for me, that focus was very helpful because I just kept focusing on how do I, you know, how do I do something good here? How do I work with people? Who can I be? How can I interact with people? What's the most skillful way to lead to the best results? And, and that led to all these, all these things happening. 
I love that. I mean, it's it's taking you know you take the cards that you're dealt with, and you 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 know you could have been, again right. You could be like, why can't we do this or why you ask questions or that. Instead, it's just you just played the game and said, okay, here's what I'm dealt, and then how do I play that? Right? Is that kind of like how basically kind of I know not see maybe not saw it at the time, but how you see it afterwards? Yeah. Well, I was really genuinely. I you know I was I became you know because I realized. Uh, you know, when I hit the wall being locked up and what I'd done to my son, I had really been ignoring the whole ethical foundations of the Buddhist tradition I was part of. I was mostly focused on meditation and awareness in the mind. And, and, and there's a very strong ethical tradition within the Buddhist tradition. And I first realized I have to embrace that absolutely and live from that context. If, you know, that, that was job one. I also realized that, you know, anything good I was going to able to do in prison was going to come out of really, you know, walking the talk. And so I was really practicing very intensely hours every day. And, and, you know, and I just really genuinely wanted to, um, to relate with people in a, in a very professional and courteous and kind and respectful and human way. And by doing that consistently over time, uh, I was able to, to be an imp of influence where people open their minds around starting programs like the hospice program and like other programs. So I didn't think of it. I mean, yeah, I could look at, you know, playing the game, but I didn't, I really didn't think of it so much as playing a game. It's just really trying to, to follow the principles that, that, you know, that I was training in and, and believed in and being able to, you know, create a positive uh, uh, influence in that way. But the alternative, which, you know, and I, I want to say that I, I used to think there was a guy there that I knew for a while in prison. We'd get in big arguments about this, but he was more the kind of guy really totally focused on injustice and constantly filing lawsuits and getting locked up all the time. And he was battling the system. And, you know, and I chose not to, I chose more to work with, with things to get things done. And he was saying, well, you're just collaborating with them. The fact that you created a hospice program just makes it easier for them to keep guys locked up here. And I said, no, you know, we actually are creating a model out there that includes compassionate release and hospice. The fact of the matter is a lot of people aren't going to get out. So why don't we, we just want to let them die horrible deaths here, you know, and so we just get back and forth about that. But my point is that actually there were a lot of laws changed by prisoners who did the battle approach and the injustice of injustice approach. Uh, many of them had been won earlier and were starting to be eroded by the time I was there. There was a lot of things in the seventies and early eighties where prisoners won court cases that, created a lot of rights that I benefited from there. And I know a lot of them suffered from it because when you go start battling uh, the courts from in prison, they often put you on diesel therapy. They move you all over the place so you don't have access to your law books or you could get beaten up or all kinds of stuff happens. So I don't, you know, I benefited from people that took that more prophetic, this is unjust, I'm going to battle the system approach. And I just chose to do it a different way. Oh, I love it. And I think that and it, it has worked massively. So that, and look at all the work you've done with that. Um, now, when it comes to with your story and everything in your book and all that, how do how can individuals take on, you know, radical responsibility? How can they because we talked about personal and collective. And I, I love when you brought that up before we got on the podcast, because I'm all about like telling people, you know, there's the collective and what it exists as. And I'm like, but you play a huge role in that. If you want to change that, you got to change you. How does you know, how can someone really take radical responsibility in their life? Well, the way I often describe it is it is voluntarily embracing 100% ownership or responsibility for each and every circumstance we face in life. And that we're not doing that to be heroic. We're not taking on some kind of burden. We're doing so because it's the only place that we have any real power. You know, let's say, uh, Vic, you and I get involved. We're in some business deal and it goes south and we're both, you know, we're ready to go to fisticuffs or go to court. And, and you know, maybe, a, a, you know, a friend of ours said, no, don't do that. You're just going to blow all your money on lawyers. I, I have this friend who's a mediator and, and you know, just why don't you guys go see the mediator? So we do that. And, you know, the mediator interviews us both and, and then brings us together and says, you know, you guys are gross both great salespeople and it's kind of a, he said, he said thing, but I'll tell you what, we do have a videotape. I'm going to go get a focus group, put together a focus group, some really smart people that don't know either one of you couldn't give a hoot about either one of you. And we'll see what they say. So media comes back at some point, turns to me and says, Fleet, well, you know, I have to say they did agree that, that, you know, Vic probably carries the larger burden of the responsibility. 
And I said, boy, I'm glad you found a brilliant group of people. And I realized it's all his fault. And I feel vindicated. Media says, no, fleet. They, they said it's really, you know, 70, 30, 60, 40. And I said, well, I don't really believe it. But as long as they agree, it's mostly his fault. And I feel vindicated. Media keeps pushing me. Okay, all right. I probably did have some role to play. I don't think it gets to 30 months less 40, but okay, I'll own some part. But I feel vindicated because they agree it's mostly Vic's fault. So does it make sense that I really feel good about that? Because if I'm convinced, I'm by definition, I'm really upset, right? Um, I'm upset something's gone wrong. I'm upset, I'm unhappy. And if I really believe it's 50%, 60%, 100%, 80% your fault, how much of my power have I just given away to you? Gave away a lot of it. At least that percent, if not all of it, because can I control you, Vic? No. Can I control you? No, not at all. No, I can't control you. So, you know, if I'm if if I'm convinced I'm unhappy and you're the cause, I just put you in charge of my internal state. Now we all do this all the time. We do it all the time. We even do it around good things. It's more of a problem around when we're unhappy. But you know, if I'm happy and I think it's because somebody out there is something doing, well, that's all well and good. But what if they stop doing it? Now I'm unhappy. You know, we put other people and we put the external world in charge of our internal state all the time. And in doing so, we give away our power. So the idea of radical responsibility is not taking on a burden. It's about reclaiming our personal power. It's really an act of radical self-empowerment. And the most important thing here, though, is to distinguish it from blame. Radical responsibility is moving beyond the whole paradigm of blame and shame altogether. It has nothing to do with blaming ourselves has nothing to do with blaming others, obviously, and it has nothing to do with blaming victims. It's about myself and taking ownership for that which I actually have some real influence over, which is hard enough. It's hard enough to get ourselves to do what we want to do, right? But at least I have a shot with myself. So that's why we focus on this. And many times when we get honest, we can see that the circumstances we're in, we did have some role to play. And I often have people go through an exercise where I ask them to see, yeah, you know, I use this uh acronym CPA, like a, like a certified public account. But in this case, it, look in that circumstance that you're unhappy about. Can you see any way that you caused it or contributed to it? Can you see any way that you promoted it? Maybe unconsciously you're setting yourself up to be taken advantage of in that way because you have some underlying, you know, script, like a life script they talk about in transactional analysis, something from childhood, and you're still unconsciously playing that out. Or maybe you just allowed it by not paying attention, not being aware, or you didn't listen to that little voice in the back of the head saying, this isn't a good idea. You could have seen it coming. You did see it coming, or you were people pleasing or enabling anything you can own, just crack open the door of ownership, right? But there may be situations where something happens to us that we just can't see we had anything to do with it. Everybody would agree, unless it's karma from a past life and who knows about such things, right? But you know, everybody would agree. We're completely innocent. We had nothing to do with it. I still suggest that we take ownership even for that, not to blame ourselves, but at least to take ownership. What are the choices I'm going to make now? Because it's the choices I'm making now that are going to determine my future. In terms of looking at whether I did have any part to play in it, that's not to blame myself. That's just to gain the insight and the knowledge. Because if I see how I contributed to a situation that I'm not happy about, then I can do something differently in the future. You know, even if I can see back three moves, if I had taken a left instead of a right, I wouldn't have ended up in that circumstance. Okay, next time I'm going to pay attention and, you know, I'll take a left instead of a right or whatever. So it's, a, it's just looking at that for the, for the purpose of getting that knowledge and insight and having more options and more choice in our life. So, so that's what radical responsibility is really all about. It's about choice. It's about self-empowerment. And the collective part is I believe we are, you know, uh, we are a brother's keeper to some degree. We all have a responsibility to the collective and, you know, we're all co-creating this collective world. And often, you know, we want to, we all fall into, you know, you know, wanting to blame this or that, or we get into politics, you know, and the, these are the bad guys. These are the good guys. I'm happy about this. I'm happy, but it's really all us, you know, that there is no them. It's us, you know, and we're all co-creating this world all together all the time. So how can we work together? to create a, uh, continually work to evolve this world and create a better world. And personally, I don't think blame and shame and dividing the world into, you know, the, the good guys and the bad guys or the perpetrators and the victims helps at all. I think it's by taking personal ownership and collective ownership about how we create a better world together 
which is how we can actually do it. And, and as we all know, you know, in our political scene today, it's just the opposite of that. It's a constant blame game. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I think it's pretty clear that it, it, that just doesn't go anywhere. So uh, I'm working on a second radical responsive book that is about the collective, and it's really going to propose a whole new possible politic that would not be about this usual left, right, liberal conservative thing where one side is all about personal responsibility, doesn't want to hear anything about the collective because they think that's a slip of soap away from personal responsibility. The other, you know, generally the left then hates the word personal responsibility because they think that's a slippery slope away from focusing on causes and conditions and all the collective reasons for people suffering. And clearly, if anybody thinks about it rationally, it's both, you know, sure. Uh, you know, when I go into prisons, and I go into prisons a lot. I'm not going in right now because of COVID-19. I hope we'll be able to get back in soon. But when I work with prisons, I want them to get two things. I want them to get that I absolutely realize that they've all been victimized in their lives. And I get that they're currently being victimized by the system. And I understand that the system currently has incredible racial injustice built into it. And, you know, I want them to I want them to get that I see all of this and I'm, that I'm very hip to it and I see it and that it breaks my heart and that it actually breaks my heart to see anybody locked up in prison. And I realize that, you know, that there's all kinds of contributing factors and a lot of it has to do with systemic and structural injustices. I want them to get that I get that. And they do because that's who I am. But the other thing I want them to get, which is equally important, is their future at this point and how they're going to get through prison and whether they're going to get out and have a good life, a good, whatever a good life for them is, depends on one and only one thing, the decisions they're making today, the decisions they make tomorrow, and the decisions they make the next day. Right. And so it's bringing those two things together. I love that. I think that's huge. And it's, you know, when we create that divisive, divisiveness, divisiveness, you know, we keep dividing, you know, left, right, all that type of stuff. It, it does, the personal responsibility, just taking it as its own can be a united force. And I love how you brought up, you know, one thing I want to ask a question on, because this is something I've had with the movements that happened last year in which I'm proud so, you know, I stand behind some of them and, and so forth. But I come from a background where, where I was taught that you want to make something, you go for it. And no matter what, comes your way no matter what happens that is you don't make an excuse and say well this didn't happen you know blaming as we're talking about this didn't happen because of this or because of this system this is why this is happening to me instead taking it and saying well if this is the cards like i said earlier these are the cards i'm dealt with well i'm going to do the best i can to make the best that i could possibly do for my life because i know where i want to go and i'm not going to let anything get in the way and i'll figure things out along the way if i have to and if, if i go this way and it's like okay i hit a roadblock okay course correct and we go this way then um is that kind of some things where radical responsibility comes into place where we're not letting certain circumstance even though the game is and I say game because I call life a game, um, but the the system in that matter, even if it's rigged against us in a sense, and it's a victim mentality just saying that, but if I take personal responsibility for myself and the choices I'm making, as long as I do that, I can create the transformation and create a whole different paradigm for myself rather than what the common collective experiences when they stay in that that energy or that 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 level. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I do think it's, it's I don't necessarily, to, to see the ways in which the system is rigged isn't necessarily a victim mindset. It depends on what we do, because the system is rigged in many ways. You know, you know, Tony Robbins wrote his book about money because he said, you know, the, the financial system is rigged against the ordinary person. So I'm going to go out. He had access to all these high level financial people. And I'm going to go out and really see how the whole thing works and try to give the common person the information they need to deal with this system, right? So there are a lot of ways in which, it, and there is a lot, there, there are all kinds of problems. You know, I, I've been involved in social justice work ever since I went to prison and, and ever, ever since. And I'm very involved in, in all kinds of social justice, economic justice work today and criminal justice reform and so forth. I am not a fan of the current, what's sometimes called social justice warrior movement, which some people will take offense at, seem pejorative, or what's called woke culture these days. And the reason I'm not a fan of it, I, I, I understand where it comes from. I appreciate the things that they want to change. I want to change those things too. I just think they have poor strategies because the strategies are very much built around the victim mindset and dividing people into perpetrators and victims. And I think they're actually keeping people down. I think they're giving people an excuse to stay down. 
And so I want to, you know, not everybody is going to have the wherewithal to say, you know, I'm responsible for what I, you know, there are people that just, you know, what they haven't been given that context. Right. And so, and they are maybe held back by certain systemic forces. So I have a lot of compassion and care about that. But what I want to deliver to them and what I deliver when I go into prisons is the message of personal responsibility, because that's what's going to help them get out of an unfair and unjust situation and do something with their life. Not coming along and saying, you should, you should, you know, you should just be a victim and, and blame all your problems on, you know, this system that's broken. And it's not to say it. Like I said, when I spoke to I want to I'm going to make good. I know the system's broken. I know our criminal justice system is racist. And I want you to get out of prison and have a good life. So how do we accomplish that? It's it's by you. You know, if you want to change the world and have it become a better world and a more just world and a less racist world, then let's get you to get your act together, educate yourself and get out of prison, and become a powerful person to go out and make that change. I could not agree more with that whole, everything you just shared there. It's one of those things where, you know, I think it does hold them back and suppresses them more. And, you know, I, I learned all this from Ron Paul when he was running for president back then and he was talking about it. And I just love how he teaches and walks people through and how he educates. And I was just like, I knew there was an imbalance, didn't realize it was that severe. And now I was like, wow, I'm more aware of this. And then it was, but then again, it came back to again, like, that's why I love your your book and everything you're talking about today is, taking that personal responsibility because now you, you level the playing field, in my opinion, because now it's like, it's all about you at the end of the day and you can make that change. It's just like Tony Robbins. I love the book. I read it years ago. And it was one of those things where I was like, I already knew wall street had it all rigged, but I was like, this is interesting. You know, he's coming out sharing these information and it was nice. I was like, wow, here we go. And then I of course took that. And then I self-educated myself because I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to learn to play this, play the game, even though they run the course of everything, I'm going to learn how to play it. So that way I can benefit from it in some way, shape or form. And it took years, but I, cause I didn't have a background. No one in my grow upbringing ever did that. So I had a, I, but I took it upon my responsibility to say, well, if this is what I want. This is what I want to do. And I need to learn and I'll pick brains. I'll hire people if I have to, to learn how to get to that level. So I commend the work you're doing very much. So on everything that you're up to. Yeah. I would like to say just, you know, I realize this is a controversial subject and I don't want to alienate anybody in your audience. Um, you know, especially after uh, the George Floyd tragedy and, and killing and what for some people was a murder. Um, and I don't know if the courts have educated that yet, but they very well may determine it to be a murder. And, you know, all the aftermath of that and the Black Lives Matter movement and everything. And obviously this has been a very tumultuous time in our society. And it, and it really people get, you know, it, it's a very emotional, very emotional issue. Right. And and so. You know, I would encourage you to invite people, a few other people they could read, because here I am a white guy, you know, you're going to listen, you know, uh, around this issue. But uh, a couple of people I would recommend, Coleman Hughes is a young African-American intellectual podcaster, jazz musician, went to Columbia University. He has a great podcast and he's someone who speaks to these issues and he doesn't agree with the current woke ideology, uh, you know, doesn't agree with Robin DiAngelo's book. Uh, which I don't agree either, White Fragility or or some of the other, uh, Ibrahim Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which is kind of the, some of the Bibles of the current world culture. But Coleman Hughes is a young black intellectual who comes from a very, you know, has a very different view. James McWhorter, who's a, a tenured uh, black professor at, I think he's also Columbia University. Uh, there are some uh, really powerful African-American intellectuals out there that have the audacity to, to speak against that current, you know, really popular taking over the mainstream kind of world culture. And they're speaking from their, their experience as black Americans. So, uh, you know, I just encourage people to think about that because I realize it's, you know, it's a dominant force right now. Uh, but I just don't see how encouraging people to, I, you know, build their identity around their victim mindset and have hierarchies of, you know, my levels of victimization and that becoming my identity serves anybody. We didn't need to deal with the problems. We have real problems. I just think, what are the strategies? And personally, I don't think those are the best strategies. And I think it's, it's, uh, we have to integrate both this collective, you know, the focus on how do we create a more just world and even the playing field for everybody, but how do we do that from a perspective of personal responsibility as well? And we have to get rid of that victim, that victim mindset and that, and it's very, it's been, it's very ingrained in our culture. I mean, I see, 
I, I'm, a, I'm a pediatric chiropractor. That's what I do for my day, day to day. And it's one of those things where you can hear it in kids' voices. They'll blame right off the bat young. I mean, five, four, five, six years old. I'm always like, where is that programming coming from? And it's a code. It's, a, it's in our collective consciousness. And until we... The, the adults and then we teach our children that that no it's all you at the end of the day because um, I wasn't taught that it was easy for me to blame everyone blamed growing up so I just blamed the same thing um, but it's very powerful and I think that can transcend a lot of these things and when we start doing it from a personal standpoint as you know this very well already um, then that's where we can start to affect the collective and then really create that transformation what we're really looking for in the essence of it all at the end of the day um, I really enjoyed this conversation and before we go I just want to ask how can people connect with you, find your book, and all that good stuff? All right. Well, they can find a book at www.radicalresponsibilitybook.com. And you can read all about the book there and all the accolades from a, from a lot of amazing people. And then you can actually order it right from that on through Amazon or Barnes & Noble, who you ever want to order it from. So radicalresponsibilitybook.com. Uh, the prison work, if they're interested in that, prisonmindfulness.org, prisonmindfulness.org which is all the work we do at prisoners or mindfulpublicsafety.org, which is the work we do at public safety professionals, corrections, police, and so forth, mindfulpublicsafety.org. And then I have my own seminar business where I'm bringing uh, this kind of transformational learning out, out to the public through online seminars and in-person seminars and big online summits and so forth. And that's HeartMind Institute and that's www.heartmindinstitute.co with the com wasn't available. So it's not .com, it's .co, uh, heartmindinstitute.co. And awesome. they can also just go find a, a lot about me through fleetmall.com, fleetmall.com. Beautiful. Um, I will have that for all the listeners in the show notes as always. So um, Dr. Mall, this was awesome. I appreciate the work that you're doing really per from, from all levels uh, and, and with the prisoners and all that. They need that type of work. Um, my philosophy and background, you know, I look at, I think it's an African nation or one of the states where they don't prison anyone they bring them into a circle and they chant their song to help them remind them of who they really are and they don't and it helps helps them get back and I really that's more of the movement of my my passion when it comes to certain stuff like that so I really commend all the work you're doing thank you for sharing space taking time and sharing this with the mindfulness uh, mindful uh, uh, experiment uh, community here and uh, keep keep doing the great work that you're doing okay dr. Vic thank you I might need a no, I I, I might need another chiropractor one of these days, so I might have to come see you. Yeah, me now. I love it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. For past shows, please visit www.empoweryourreality.com. I hope this show inspired you and added to your life to help you on the journey to rediscover who you really are. To connect with us on Facebook, please visit www.facebook.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. Check us out on Twitter. The handle is Dr. Vic 21. Follow us on Instagram, www.instagram.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. If you were inspired by the podcast, pay it forward by sharing it with someone who you know can benefit from it. Thank you again for listening to the Mindful Experiment podcast, sharing paths to help you rediscover your infinite potential. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing it with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. Until next time, keep rocking and rolling.